artificial intelligence is reshaping every aspect of our lives, from transportation to agriculture to dating. Someday, we may even create a superintelligence, a computer system that is demonstrably smarter than humans. There is widespread disagreement on how soon we could build a superintelligence, and there's not even a broad consensus on how we can define that term intelligence. Information technology is improving so rapidly that we are losing the ability to forecast the near future. Even the most well-informed politicians and business people are constantly surprised by technological changes and their downstream impacts on society. Today, the most accurate guidance on the pace of technology comes from the scientists and the engineers who are building the tools of our future. Martin Ford is a computer engineer and the author of Architects of Intelligence, a new book of interviews with the top researchers in artificial intelligence. Martin's interviewees include Jeff Dean, Andrew Ng, Demis Hassabis, Ian Goodfellow, and Ray Kurzweil. Architects of Intelligence is a privileged look at how AI is developing. Martin Ford surveys these different AI experts with similar questions. How will China's adoption of AI differ from that of the U.S.? What is the difference between the human brain and that of a computer? What are the low-hanging fruit applications of AI that we have yet to build? Martin joins the show to talk about his new book, and in our conversation, Martin synthesizes ideas from these different researchers and describes the key areas of disagreement and agreement from across the field of artificial intelligence. To find all 900 of our old episodes, including past episodes with authors and artificial intelligence researchers, you can check out the Software Engineering Daily app in the iOS and Android app stores. We have lots of content. Whether or not you're a software engineer, you can find stuff about technology and business and culture and artificial intelligence in the future. In our app, you can become a paid subscriber and get ad-free episodes, but you don't have to. You can just use our free features. You can have conversations with members of the Software Engineering Daily community. You can use our search index to find the episodes that appeal to you. So if that sounds useful, you can check it out in the iOS or Android app stores. Let's get on with the episode. Hired simplifies the job search for engineers with a data-driven, personalized matching process. Head to Hired.com slash SE Daily and create a profile today. By creating one profile, you'll be matched with over 10,000 companies looking for engineers like you. Hired uses intelligent matching technology, data science with years of experience matching engineers with jobs. And Hired also has a human in the loop. Hired gives personalized career coaching to match you with opportunities based on your skills, industry, interests, and desired salary. Create a profile today at Hired.com slash SE Daily. Find a job that you truly love, that is personalized to your background and your preferences. And if you aren't an engineer, Hired also helps designers, engineering managers, product managers, and other tech workers find their dream jobs. Just go to Hired.com slash SE Daily and check it out.
Martin Ford, you are the author of the new book, Architects of Intelligence. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. Your previous books focused on the effects of automation on the economy and the problems that could arise within a world where many of the jobs that people work today will potentially be done by robots. You had The Lights in the Tunnel, you had Rise of the Robots, which was written in 2015. How has your thinking on artificial intelligence and the economy evolved since then? Well, my basic you know, belief that there will be a, a major impact both on the economy more broadly and specifically on the job market continues to basically hold. I do touch on that subject significantly in, in this latest book, Architects of Intelligence, but it's actually a much broader book where I took, you know, I talk much more generally about the implications of AI and, and the technology itself. So there isn't anything that's really changed my mind. There are some things that are surprising. The fact that right now we have such a low unemployment rate in the United States is not something I would have predicted when I published Rise of the Robots. But I still believe that, that the evidence overall suggests that the, the impact is coming. What we're seeing, though, is that so far, the impact is mostly on wages. The fact that wages are stagnant, we're not seeing people getting raises, and also on the labor force participation rate, where people are actually dropping out of the uh, workforce entirely, for example. So there's plenty of evidence out there that this is going to be a big impact. But of course, the, the way it plays out is going to be a bit unpredictable. This new book, Architects of Intelligence, you interview experts in artificial intelligence, people like Jeff Dean, Demis Hassabis, Stuart Russell. Why did you write this book? Well, the basic concept for the book was presented to me by a publisher, Pact, about a year ago. And so it was really their idea. And they'd worked on another book previously called Founders at Work that involved interviewing people who had started companies like Yahoo, for example. And I thought that the concept was fantastic. I mean, I really think that there's a lot of hype out there, a lot of people purporting to be artificial intelligence experts making predictions, some of them really pretty far-fetched. Um, you've got people like Elon Musk, of course, talking about the dangers of AI, I think in a very kind of scary way that, that maybe isn't, isn't the best strategy. And so what I wanted to do was talk to the people who really know the most. These are the people literally that in some cases have invented you know, the, the, the key concepts behind the revolution that we're now seeing. So these people know more than anything else. They're familiar with exactly what's happening in the field. I wanted to get inside their heads, find out what's the direction of artificial intelligence going to be over the near term and the long term. And, you know, what are the opportunities and the risks? What, what should we really worry about, genuinely be concerned about, and what things are just, you know, kind of science fiction hype that maybe we don't have to worry too much about? And, uh, so that was the basic you know, thesis for the book. It's not surprising that the general public has several misconceptions about artificial intelligence because it's a difficult scientific subject to wrap your mind around. But most of the people that listen to this show are technologists. They're software engineers. They're people that are product managers. And even people who are in technical fields have some misconceptions about artificial intelligence. What are the most common misconceptions about AI that are held by even fairly technical people? I think everyone, even even technical people who maybe are not, you know, literally AI experts, tend to really give too much credence to the idea that the machines are in some way thinking in the way that people are, which really is is just not the case, right? I mean, these are very specialized 
pattern recognition technologies for the most part. That's what we're seeing with deep learning. Although there are some examples like like the latest things you see with DeepMind and so forth, where computers really are beginning to exhibit something that looks like intuition and, and even creativity and so forth. So that that's really exciting. But still, we're a very, very long way from machines that can think in a holistic way. And people need to keep that in mind that we're we're talking about very narrow specialized technologies here. But nonetheless, the fact that those technologies are specialized doesn't mean they're not going to be disruptive. And I think that's especially true with regards to the job market, because a lot of the jobs and tasks that people do are also very specialized and narrow. And, and these technologies are going to have a big impact there. We have had success in supervised learning, where you can label sets of training examples and build a machine learning model that can classify the types of data that you have trained your model on. We've had success in reinforcement learning, where you give a machine learning model a objective function, and the machine learning model learns to optimize that objective function. There's also unsupervised learning, which of the three, supervised learning, reinforcement learning, and unsupervised learning, we've had less success with unsupervised learning. Why is unsupervised learning so much harder than these fields of machine learning where we have had success? Well, I think the basic answer is that we don't really understand how human beings learn in an unsupervised way. We just don't understand how the brain does that. And it's interesting that there are different approaches going on. If you if you read Architects of Intelligence, some of the most interesting interviews there are with Yoshua Bengio, for example, who's doing a lot of work on that. Demis Hassabis is a very strong believer in reinforcement learning. But when we tend to think of reinforcement learning, we think of, you know, I usually think of it as a kind of a high level, like uh, learning to play chess or go by practicing, you know, millions of times playing the game. And that's obviously not what children do, for example, when they learn. That's not how, you know, a child learns about the world and, and language. But the point that Demis Hassabis makes in his interview is that internally to the brain, there may be a kind of reinforcement learning going on where you've got, for example, the dopamine reward function, essentially. And, and perhaps the brain has got, you, you know, it basically is rewarded for seeking structure. You can imagine a scenario where internally within the brain, anytime it makes sense of, of data and finds some structure there, it, it, it's rewarded with, with the dopamine system. So there is kind of an internal reinforcement learning that may play also into unsupervised learning. But the, the reality is that these are all ideas. A lot of it is inspired by brain science, trying to understand um, how the human brain works and also by basically experiments with children. I mean, you know, people like Josh Tenenbaum and Gary Marcus, for example, have done a lot of experiments with young children trying to understand how they learn. And these are ideas that are also inspiring AI. But, you know, unsupervised learning is is maybe the certainly one of the biggest hurdles that we have to overcome on the path to more general intelligence. And uh, it's really quite wide open. I mean, it's an area that, that just is not well understood. Another area that Demis Hassabis in your interview with him promoted is transfer learning. Transfer learning is the idea that we can transfer knowledge from one domain to a new domain. And humans are pretty good at this. You see people who will study a variety of domains and then they'll find that something in podcasting translates to something in computer science and that's transfer learning. 
but computers aren't so good at this. Are, are there any domains in which we've learned to do transfer learning on computer-generated models? I think it's very limited so far, but I do think that that is one of, as you say, that's one of the most important hurdles that we need to overcome. It's going to, that'll be a big indicator of, of the path toward uh, human-level AI. I mean, I would argue that, that the ability to transfer knowledge from one domain to another domain is sort of a good benchmark of intelligence in, in a sense. You know, it's, it's obviously pretty easy to write a computer program that can read data and then basically fill in the blanks, answering questions directly. Uh, you know, for example, read a textbook and then answer questions at the end of that textbook. Something like that is, you know, even children can do that without really understanding what it is that they're talking about, right? I mean, uh, David Ferrucci in his interview gives an example of, of his daughter basically doing this in one of her classes. But if you can read a textbook, say about history, and then learn something from that and apply that to what's happening in the world today, you know, say people will say that what's happening with China is, is in some ways similar to what happened in World War One, where you've got a rising power that's going to threaten the dominant power. And this is exactly what happened in World War I. If you can make those kinds of intuitions and transfers, then that's really the, the hallmark of true intelligence. And uh, I don't think we have a demonstration of a machine that has done that so far. But I know that, that you know, Hasabis at DeepMind and, and, and others are extremely interested in that and they're, and they're working on that. And that may be one of the next big breakthroughs that, that we see. There's this tension throughout the book the one of the one of the tensions that you see between the different researchers is the degree of confidence that they have in deep learning and for supervised learning reinforcement learning the tools of the trade that we already have versus the idea that maybe we need something else uh, but there are even people that you interview that talked optimistically about revisiting the use of rule-based systems, these these expert-like systems that in some ways were kind of thrown out in favor of deep learning once people start seeing really good results from deep learning. So between these two perspectives on, you know, maybe we can just take the deep learning and the rule-based systems and reinforcement learning maybe that will be enough to get to artificial general intelligence and to get to our technological utopia versus the people who said, I think we need something else. People like Andrew Ng, who were saying, you know, we really probably need something else. Did you come out favoring one of those two arguments? Well, I think, you know, first of all, everyone acknowledges, you know, the incredible disruptive power of, of deep learning and what, and what has been what has been accomplished, which is basically deep learning using supervised learning. That, that's what has really created all of the, most of the breakthroughs that, that we've seen so far. In terms of how AI moves forward and approaches something like artificial general intelligence, there are two general camps. There are the real advocates of deep learning as the way forward, and they think that it will be refined and enhanced. I mean, everyone acknowledges that there is a lot of stuff that needs to happen in the future, right? No one thinks that we can take deep learning just as it is today and just extend that and and it's no problem we're going to get to AGI. I mean everyone acknowledges that there are major breakthroughs that need to occur. It's just that the deep learning people believe that essentially neural networks are going to be the foundation for that and that all those breakthroughs can occur through refinements to neural networks and for example the back propagation algorithm and things that really 
underlie deep learning. And that camp includes people like Jeff Hinton, Andrew, you know, Andrew Ng, I think for the most part, Joshua Bengio, Jan LeCun, and, and so forth. Those are the real strong proponents of neural networks. And then most of the other people outside of that camp are more generalists, and they, they, they definitely believe that neural networks are going to be part of the solution, but they think that some other ideas from more traditional areas of AI need to be brought into it. And most important of those is probably symbolic logic, right? Up until the disruptive rise of deep learning, which really only really took off in, in 2012, but maybe you know going back a little bit before that, neural networks were really kind of pushed aside and really the primary thrust in AI was was symbolic logic, was was the idea of teaching machines not not specifically to learn so much, but to think, right? To reason. And and the idea was that someone entered a bunch of data rather than than having machines learn from data and and then the based on rules or or you know ways ways of reasoning that that machines could could actually think and that's where you had the programming languages like Lisp and so forth and you had projects like Psych which were geared toward building computers with common sense and all of that kind of got you know marginalized with the rise of deep learning but now people are arguing that some of that needs to be brought back you can't do it all with deep learning. And you're seeing some very important projects in that area. For example, the Allen Institute of Artificial Intelligence in Seattle. And I talked to Oren Itzioni about this. Um, they've got a new project called Mosaic, which is the latest attempt to build common sense into computers. And they think that this is going to be a very important initiative. Now, people like Jeff Hinton and Joshua Bengio are very dismissive of that. They say, you know, that's... That's kind of silly that if we just work on building better learning systems using neural networks, eventually common sense will emerge from that. And they're quite certain of that. I mean, I specifically asked them that question. So there's a very strong divergence of opinion there. And you have to read the book to decide, I guess, which camp you're in. I, I probably myself am a bit more in a camp that thinks maybe some other ideas and and need to be brought into it. And perhaps the future is really going to be kind of a hybrid system that incorporates neural networks together with some other ideas. But but I guess only the future will, will tell us what, what the real path is going to be. Software engineering boot camps are an alternative to the traditional computer science education process. I've seen several close friends go through a boot camp and find a job as an engineer shortly after. Boot camps are much cheaper than a college education, and I see so many engineers coming out of boot camps despite starting the boot camp without much experience as a programmer. App Academy is a 12-week boot camp where you will learn all the skills that you need to begin a career as a web developer. App Academy teaches you Ruby on Rails, JavaScript, and React, and you don't need any programming experience to get started with a coding bootcamp like App Academy. App Academy doesn't charge tuition until a student is hired and earning more than $50,000 in compensation. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com appacademy and find out more about App Academy and apply to get into the program you will get $250 off your tuition when you enter SE Daily in the field for How Did You Hear About App Academy? 
Software engineering is a growing field, and App Academy will teach you a great base of disciplines and software engineering practices and skills and tactics that you need to succeed in only three months. Students graduate from App Academy and find jobs at places such as Google, Facebook, and Dropbox. The average starting salary for an App Academy student is over $100,000. But, of course, it's not easy to make it through App Academy. It's not easy to make it through any kind of boot camp. That's why it's called a boot camp. But that's also how they are able to pack so much information into three months. It's grueling. It's really interesting and intense. I've met a lot of people who have said that the condensed boot camp process is one of the most informative periods in their life. And if you are looking to learn engineering, it's a great option. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash appacademy to apply and get $250 off your tuition by mentioning SE Daily in the How Did You Hear About App Academy box. Thanks to App Academy for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Another of these themes of disagreement between the different researchers is AGI. And by the way, I should say that I don't think any of these disagreements, for the most part, are are with vitriol. These are just simple scientific disagreements where people have different hypotheses about the direction of the future. Why is it that some researchers are concerned about AGI and some of them have absolutely no concern? What explains the fact that you have these variety of very smart people who who seem to diverge sharply on this issue? Well, first of all, there's a lot of disagreement about the path to AGI and how long it's likely to take, right? So one of the most important indicators there is you know, how far off is this? Because if, if, if people believe it's 100 years away or more, then of course, they're going to be naturally less focused on the risks that come with that. Because you can make a pretty reasonable argument that if it's 100 years in the future, it's very hard to get your, it's not really tractable, right, to think about the problems that are going to come with it. Because we don't know enough, you know, and we're going to learn a lot more during that very long path to the realization of this technology. So that by the time it arises, you know, 100 years from now, we'll, we'll know much, much more about these issues than we do now. So I think that's a pretty compelling argument. The counter argument is that, first of all, we don't really know when it's going to occur. It might, it might happen much sooner than we think. And secondly, even if it is going to take a long time, it may also take a long time to solve the problem to make AGI safe or super intelligence safe, right? So we need to start working on that. Uh, now so that we make sure that that you know we have the tools in place when it actually happens but in terms of you know the timing that's one of the most important takeaways in the book there's a very broad range there ray kurzweil for example thinks it's going to happen basically in a decade 2029 rodney brooks said 180 years so that's a huge variance um, in terms of opinions and i did a, a survey of everyone and it came out to around 80 years in the future so it, that's a fairly pessimistic uh, prediction for when AGI would actually be achieved compared to some other surveys that have been done. So that's part of it. But I, I think that, you know, some people believe that, you know, they have, they, they have great confidence that, that we will learn more as we progress and that we will be in a position to control these systems 
and you don't worry too much about that. Whereas other people like Russell Stewart and of course, Nick Bostrom are very concerned about that. My own view is somewhere in between. And I think many people also agree with this, like Demis Demis Hassabis said basically the same thing that, you know, I think we should take these issues somewhat seriously. I think it's a good thing that private think tanks like the Future of Humanity Institute and and OpenAI and the Machine Research or the Machine Intelligence Research Institute. These are you know relatively small organizations that are privately funded. They've got a lot of very smart people that are actively thinking about these issues, and I think that's a great thing. But I don't think we want to really make this a huge government endeavor, or we don't want Donald Trump tweeting about the risks of superintelligence. I mean, I, I think that's going too far at this point, right? So I, I think we we need to keep it a bit more measured and have some very smart, informed people working on these issues. And I think that that's absolutely a good thing. There were some fairly concrete ideas about how we might get to AGI. The one that I think I saw the most in your book was the idea that we need models of how language is represented. We need better natural language understanding. Speaking more broadly, Stuart Russell said that we need machines that can construct abstractions and hierarchies, and natural language understanding would be one kind of set of abstractions. If if the machines were actually understanding how language was represented, in contrast to something like word to vec where it's more of a this associative model that's not exactly like how humans think about language understanding, although I guess it is a form of language understanding. What's your perspective on that idea of these abstractions and, and representing actual concepts to machines? How important is that to getting to AGI? Yeah, I, I think that's inevitably is very important. There are people taking different approach. I mean, if you look at DeepMind, and what Demis Hassabis is doing, it's not so much focused specifically on understanding language. It's really, you know, inspired by the brain. It's, it's building neural networks that can do all kinds of things. And, and the assumption is that that understanding of language, you know, as, as he progresses using, largely using deep re- reinforcement learning, that, that that will emerge, right? So he's not specifically focused so much on 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 the language stuff. On the other hand, one person I talked to that I thought was really fascinating was David Ferrucci, who is um, who was the IBM Watson team leader, right? He's the guy that created IBM Watson, which of course was very focused on understanding natural language. I mean, that was the whole point of of winning at Jeopardy, right? That that was the the key capability. So he's got a new startup called Elemental Cognition, which I think is funded in part by Bridgewater, a huge hedge fund, and he's really focused on on taking the work that he did with Watson and taking that to the next level and building a generally intelligent system using an understanding of language and, and doing, as you say, having this ability to, to understand abstract concepts. And, and he's very, very ambitious and, and aggressive in his predictions. He, he says specifically in the interview that he doesn't think that AGI is this long-term thing that, that, that's 50 or more years in the future. He thinks that we actually have the tools we need to build much more generally intelligent systems now, and that's what they're working on. I think that's quite exciting. And, and Ray Kurzweil also at, at Google, um, that's another fascinating interview, is also very focused on language. He's using 
he he had written a book previously, How to Create a Mind, and his work is based on you know his ideas from that. And and of course, Jeff Hawking also wrote a book before that called On Intelligence that. I think was in some ways a, an inspiration for what Ray Ray wrote. But Ray's working on incorporating hierarchical models with with deep learning and and using that to to solve the natural language problem as well. So there are a number of people taking these different approaches, and it's really fascinating to read uh, you know these interviews and, and 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 what they're doing. So I think it's very exciting. What I find interesting about Kurzweil is I remember a couple, you know, several years ago when he was recruited to Google and and just like kind of learning about who he was and seeing some of his talks and reading some of his books. And you get the idea that he's kind of this prophet and he's got these philosophical ideas about AI. But, you know, and, and, he, and he has built he has built companies in the past. So clearly he's got a, a, an ability to build applications out of these things. But you kind of wondered, like. What is this guy actually doing about artificial intelligence? And then this autocomplete feature comes out with, you know, where Google can autocomplete your emails for you and give these suggested responses. And you're like, this is this is an incredible breakthrough in email technology, a very, very useful application. And I believe that his team was responsible for it. That's right. And, and this is also, I, I was really struck by this in the interview because I had kind of the same perception that you did. He's a futurist. He's an author. He has a lot of kind of kooky ideas. We're going to live forever. And, and even he talked at one point about trying to bring his father back to life. And, you know, I mean, some of this stuff is pretty out there, right? And that, that, so my perception of, of Ray was was certainly tainted by that, although I, I've always realized he's a very smart guy. But during the interview, it really came across that when he's talking about the nuts and bolts of what he's doing at Google, I mean, he knows his stuff, right? He's a very smart guy. He knows artificial intelligence. He's not just somebody that is kind of removed from it, writing about it or something. I mean, he's he's definitely immersed in the details and he's really working on that. So I thought that was really interesting to see that kind of that. You don't always see that side of, of Kurzweil, right? Because he's got this persona of, of being the, the kind of the over-the-top over futurist, right? So that was really fascinating to me. He, but he's, he's doing real work there, um, for sure. He's got another thing he talked about called Talk to Books, where you can, you can query books and, you know, get, get answers. Um, so, so I, I kind of can't wait to query your book. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's really fascinating. And I, you know, I, it was just a tremendous privilege to me to talk to all of these people and get their different perspectives and, and personalities. I mean, I, I guess there aren't too many people that have had a chance to talk to an hour or more with, with people of this caliber, right, and, and, and talk about all these issues. So I feel very lucky to have done that. Yeah, and if you like it, by the way, you should think about starting a podcast because it's a really it's a good excuse to do it on a regular basis. Kurzweil, man, he, there's a documentary on YouTube that's kind of old and dated at this point, but it's I think he produced it called "The Singularity Is Near." It's sort of in parallel with his book, and it's got some of his kookier ideas, and I really enjoyed it actually, even though it's kind of dated. And I I do wonder if that talk to books thing will have some some useful applications. You got to imagine if he spent time on it probably is going to have some applications after seeing autocorrect. So speaking about applications, you spoke to these researchers about using AI for advertising, for surveillance, for military, for medical applications, all the way to several other long tail applications. Were there any, I mean, you've been thinking about the applied AI for a pretty long time with your, with your work on studying the economic impacts. Were there any 
applications of AI that were talked about that got you really excited or surprised you? Well, I, I was very excited, for example, what Daphne Kohler's doing. She's got a startup called Insero, which is uh, focused on using machine learning for drug discovery, right? Well, you can imagine that it's going to be incredibly disruptive. I mean, right now it's just, it's gotten just incredibly expensive and difficult to bring new drugs to market, you know, because of FDA regulation and the cost and everything. And and the way it's always been done is people in laboratories with test tubes, you know, doing trial and error experiments and so forth. But we're now going to have AI systems that can, in a systematic way, you know, by, by using basically searching molecule ge- geometries, I think is how it works, we'll be able to discover new drugs. I mean, you think of how powerful that's going to be. So I think the applications in healthcare and medicine are certainly among the most exciting. Actually, Ray Kurzweil talked about this as well. He he made the point that, you know, one of the most exciting areas so far has been games, right? Where games can be simulated, right, on a computer and and that's what have brought advances like like Alpha Alpha Zero and Alpha Go. But he says biology can also be simulated and that's gonna become an important platform for the future of deploying these algorithms. And in fact, you already, you, you may have seen recently that, that DeepMind announced uh, their alpha fold system, right, which is doing protein folding, figuring out the geometry of protein molecules, which is incredibly important for medicine and, and, and discovering new drugs and so forth. So you're already beginning to see those applications. So I think there's just going to be incredible implications for medicine, for science, maybe areas like clean energy, um, finding solutions to climate change. I mean, we're really going to begin to have this incredibly powerful new tool to use in all these areas. And that's what's exciting. But then, of course, there is the other side where there are applications that we're going to worry a bit more about. I mean, and, and I talk about this in the book, the fact that, for example, in China right now, artificial intelligence is being used, especially for facial recognition to create truly an Orwellian surveillance state, right? And this is quite scary. I mean, they've also got a social ranking system where literally everything you do, every decision you make, every purchasing decision is going to be tracked and it's going to go into some kind of a ranking. You're going to get five stars or three stars or one star. And if if you're a one-star person, you're not going to be able to buy airplane tickets and you're not going to be able to send your kids to good schools and stuff like that. So it's really scary what they're doing. And there's a real danger that at least some of that is going to seep into, you know, Western countries as well, you know, just because there's always this trade-off between security and and privacy and so forth. So that's something that we need to watch really closely. And then the, the many discussions I had about weaponization, I think is really important. I mean, a lot of people are very passionate about the application of the potential application of AI to, to weapons, right? And in particular to autonomous weapons that could be used really almost as, as weapons of mass disruption, potentially. So there are a lot of issues there. And also another area that comes up is bias in algorithms where we've seen you know bias based on race and gender and things like that. That's an area of deep concern. So you know the applications and the risks are really one of the most important aspects of the book. So I encourage everyone to, to read through that because there are, there are really important ideas there. I was shocked when you were talking to Jan LeCun and he said that the Terminator scenario is not something that we should be worried about. He was very clear on this. And I don't understand where he's coming from there. You look at somebody like Stuart Russell, 
who helped produce Slaughterbots. Slaughterbots is this video on YouTube that anybody can can go and watch. It's kind of a fictionalized, like Black Mirror-esque video about a plausible direction that autonomous weapons could go in with technology we have available today that could lead to some serious problems in our society. How concerned are you about autonomous weapons after seeing these divergent perspectives? Right. Well, first of all, it's really important to make a distinction between the types of risk we're talking about here. Autonomous weapons does not imply the Terminator because the Terminator is true intelligence, right? These are machines that have general intelligence. They have a goal. They have an objective oh, okay. to kill humanity. So I, right? so I misunderstood so, so, you on the So right. Perhaps. But I mean, these are both important concerns, but it's just important to separate them. So, so Stuart Russell's video is about dumb autonomous weapons that could be given an objective to recognize maybe someone's face using facial recognition and kill that person, right? So someone would set that up and maybe deploy thousands of these autonomous drones to do that. Okay, that's something that could be happening within the next few years, literally. We already have the technology to do that, right? That's not, that's narrow artificial intelligence, just a weapon that can seek target, decide for itself, whether to shoot at that target, right? Destroy that target. That's all stuff that could be done today. It doesn't imply AGI at all. So that risk, I think any reasonable person is at least willing to acknowledge that it exists. Although some people, even, even I think Jan LeCun, for example, you know, even there, he wasn't especially concerned about it. But I think you know, everyone would have to, to acknowledge that that is a real concern potentially within the next few years. And But some people are deeply concerned with that. Um, certainly, um, Stuart Russell is is perhaps most so, but men, but there is a petition that many people signed promising to never work on autonomous weapons. And th- this is what they're talking about. And the real fear there is is not so much that militaries will do this because militaries probably will, right? I mean, you know, there's a competition. I mean, you, Russia is going to do it. So the United States ultimately will have to have similar technologies. I think it's kind of inevitable. But the real concern is that these kinds of weapons become more generally available so that, you know, you think of the kind of shady arms dealers, right, that sell machine guns in Africa and things like that, right? What if they are selling weapons like this so that anyone can get them, so that they're easily accessible to terrorists and so forth? That's really scary, right? And there's also the risk that someone in their basement could at least do this on a limited level um, and produce, you know, at least dozens of these or something. But one of the issues with with these technologies is that the the barrier to entry is a lot lower than things like nuclear weapons, for example. If you want to produce nuclear weapons, you need to be a nation state, right? You need to be North Korea or something. But in terms of the technologies to build autonomous weapons, you, you could get drones off Amazon and, you know, do some work on those and, and in theory, turn them into autonomous weapons, right? I mean, so it's, it's, it's the kind of thing that literally people in a basement could do, right? So there, there's that risk. So that's why people are really worried about the autonomous weapons scenario. Now, the Terminator thing or, or the risk from superintelligence is a different thing where now you're talking about genuinely intelligent machines that would have their own goals, that would be thinking like human beings or maybe far superior to human beings. And that's an entirely different much more existential risk. And that's the thing that that really has people like Nick Bostrom concerned and and Elon Musk and so forth, you know. And that's the thing that Jan LeCun was extremely dismissive of. He said, you know, this is just 
science fiction. And and that's one perspective. And some people do believe that. Um, my feeling is that clearly Nick Bostrom and, and the people that agree with him are making a coherent argument, right? It's not just crazy stuff. I mean, they're they're putting forward an argument. So I think that we do need to take that seriously. But at the same time, we need to to be aware that it is probably pretty far off. And so it's not to me. To, one con- one concern I have about focusing on the risk of superintelligence too much right now is that it tends to distract us, distract us from the things that are going to happen right within the next five ten years. And this includes the potential for weaponization. Um, it also includes the impact on the job market and the economy and the issues surrounding privacy and bias and so forth. These are all real things that are definitely coming at us. They're already starting to emerge. Um, so we don't want to be thinking too much about, you know, the Terminator and, and super intelligence and not focusing enough on the stuff that's going to be in our face, you know, within a very short time. Yeah, this is why I think the Slaughterbots video is pretty important because this to me, more than bioterrorism or nuclear weapons terrorism seems like an actual inevitability, that there's going to be something like this because of the accessibility, because the degree to which these things can be tinkered together, because you have in China a strong profit motive and a strong entrepreneurial sense that perhaps overshadows a a sense of, I don't want to say conscience, but I guess uh, reticence towards exploring these ideas, and then it's inevitably going to make its way into the hands of, of people who are going to maliciously repurpose them. I know this wasn't really in the book, but did you, have you talked to any like military researchers or people doing war games to try to avoid these kinds of like semi-autonomous weapons attacks, the kinds of things in slaughterbots? I haven't interviewed those people, but it's a huge problem. I mean, we just, you just in the news very recently, you know that the airport in London was shut down for a few days just because of people flying drones around, right? This was not autonomous weapons or, or autonomous drones at all. It was just some people that were able to fly these systems around. And that was enough to completely shut down that airport and, and inconvenience, strand, you know, thousands and thousands of people, right? So we're just at the leading edge of this. I mean, what happens when there are autonomous, you know, you, you might have hundreds or thousands of autonomous drones that could be used in, if not to attack someone, to disrupt things, right? So these are real issues. I mean, they're definitely it's something we need to take seriously. There's going to need to be regulation and perhaps some sort of, de- it's very hard to defend against this. So it, it really is quite a scary problem. And that's why, I, I, again, I would agree with you that Slaughterbots is a great video to watch in order to really understand the implications of this. And most importantly, to understand this particular problem is not science fiction, right? This is not like the Terminator thing that, well, maybe it's way out there. This is something that could be, you know, could occur within literally the next few years. So, I mean, it's it's really something that as a society and and in terms of government oversight and so forth, but we need, we need to start thinking about that. I loved your interview with Demis Asabis from DeepMind. One thing DeepMind has had such, such success in is the solving of games, two-player games with no hidden information. Also, the exploration of games where reinforcement learning is really easy to do like well i guess this is more in the purview of open ai where they have these agent based games where an agent is 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 exploring solutions to starcraft or strategies heuristics in starcraft that that make sense you also see applications 
that sort of involve in applications of deep of uh, of reinforcement learning or i think well generative adversarial networks i don't recall exactly how they work but there is a sense of of kind of a game theory where you have these these uh two types of models that are competing with each other and through competition they asymptote towards a uh, an optimal solution what are the the best applications of of games and what are the opportunities of using games and competition to develop more effective machine learning models? Well, I think it's, you know, it's, we've always seen major advances there. One area certainly is in self-driving cars where similar techniques are used, right? You, you create a virtual simulation environment and you teach the car to drive in that environment. And that, you know, allows it to, to have, you know, tens of thousands of accidents that you wouldn't want happening on the road with a real, real car. And it is able to learn through reinforcement learning. So there are many applications where that kind of approach makes sense. Again, like, as I said, you know, Ray Kurzweil talked about how biology might be a similar area that is also very susceptible to simulation in, a, in the same way as a game. You, know, you can think of the biochemistry of your body as being a kind of a game that could be simulated, right? So there are many approaches there that will be very useful. And I, I think I, many people are very enthusiastic about this idea of building virtual worlds, simulations of the real world, and then letting intelligent agents loose in that environment to learn and, and to kind of stumble around. And, and maybe that's, you know, where we discover approaches to unsupervised learning and so forth. So that entire idea and framework is is absolutely one of the most important ideas in artificial intelligence. And I, I, I would be willing to bet that when artificial general intelligence emerges, it probably will be the result of a system that has been deployed in a simulated environment, you know, a simulated world and has learned to become intelligent in that environment. So it's an incredibly important um, approach. DigitalOcean is a reliable, easy-to-use cloud provider. I've used DigitalOcean for years, whenever I want to get an application off the ground quickly. And I've always loved the focus on user experience, the great documentation, and the simple user interface. More and more people are finding out about DigitalOcean and realizing that DigitalOcean is perfect for their application workloads. This year, DigitalOcean is making that even easier with new node types. A $15 flexible droplet that can mix and match different configurations of CPU and RAM to get the perfect amount of resources for your application. There are also CPU-optimized droplets, perfect for highly active front-end servers or CI-CD workloads. And running on the cloud can get expensive, which is why DigitalOcean makes it easy to choose the right size instance. And the prices on standard instances have gone down too. You can check out all their new deals by going to do.co slash sedaily. And as a bonus to our listeners, you will get $100 in credit to use over 60 days. That's a lot of money to experiment with. You can make $100 go pretty far on DigitalOcean. You can use the credit for hosting or infrastructure, and that includes load balancers, object storage. DigitalOcean Spaces is a great new product that provides object storage. And, of course, computation. 
Get your free $100 credit at do.co slash sedaily. And thanks to DigitalOcean for being a sponsor. The co-founder of DigitalOcean, Moisey Uretsky, was one of the first people I interviewed, and his interview was really inspirational for me, so I've always thought of DigitalOcean as a pretty inspirational company. So thank you, DigitalOcean. spoke with Nick Bostrom. Nick Bostrom is concerned about the goal alignment problem. And the goal alignment problem is where it's hard to get a artificial intelligence to have goals that are aligned with those of humans. And part of the reason for that is that, as Nick says, humans are not good at defining our goals. We don't have our goals neatly arranged into hierarchies of objective functions. We have conflicting goals that both exist in a single human. We have these two goals competing over time. They change over time. It seems unclear how we can cleanly define a machine to be aligned with our goals when our goals are always shifting. How can we solve this goal alignment problem? Yeah, it's, it, I mean, it's a real problem. I think the, the, the biggest thing that they worry about is that we might give a machine an objective, but then it would you know it would be focused on achieving that goal or that objective but it might it might execute the solution in a way that we don't anticipate and that wouldn't be good for us and and of course the sort of the cartoonish example that's always given is the paperclip optimizer right if you built a super intelligent system to optimize the manufacture of paperclips in a factory say it might decide that the best way to really optimize paperclip manufacturers to turn the whole universe into paperclips, right? And and use all our atoms to make paperclips. I mean, that's kind of an extreme cartoon example, but it's the kind of thing that that they worry about, that, that a machine would, for one thing, would be an alien intelligence, right? It would not have the same kind of human intuition that we have necessarily. It might not think in the same ways or have, take for granted things that we consider to be common sense would not necessarily be obvious to it, right? So, it's actually a computer science and mathematical problem they're working on. How do you design a system that can, you know, have, have goal congru- congruence to 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 achieve an objective, but to do it in a way that does not conflict with other important goals and objectives? And and uh, a number of people are working on this. Stuart Russell has also got some important ideas about it. One of the ideas he's put forth is that you you've got to allow some uncertainty in terms of what what the real goal is and allow machines to to attempt to understand what 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 people really want and so forth. So there there's some important research going on there, but I don't think anyone really knows the answer yet. But it's great that a number of smart people are working on on these problems. These interviews that you conducted, they push some of the philosophical words that we have to their logical limits. So these words we have, like a word like consciousness or a word like morality that we could sometimes try to to define in, in philosophy classes, for example. We try to define frameworks for these concepts. And when we try to, to transpose these to the world of AI, they become even more fragile. Why are these concepts like consciousness and morality 
why are these hard to uh, to wrap our minds around when we go to the world of AI? Well, you, you know, I think they're hard to wrap our minds around in the world of humans. I mean, and that's the reason. And there's definitely going to be a hugely important intersection between AI and philosophy in the future because a lot of these concepts overflow. I mean, there's always been a strong relationship there, and I think it will be even more true. But you, you take the problem of consciousness. One of the questions I ask many of the people I talk to is, if we someday had a generally intelligent system, would it be conscious? Would it have an inner experience, you know, a sense of itself? Would there be some, would, would the lights be on in some way within this system? Or would it just be like a zombie that was incredibly intelligent and pursued some goal, but there's nothing happening internally, no, no sense of, of self or awareness. And, and, and the quite the answer is that people don't know the answer to that. I mean, uh, I mean, I would say on, in general, people seem to believe that intelligence does not necessarily imply consciousness. That you, you, you know, the intelligence, even general human level intelligence, could be separate from consciousness. But other people might argue that in order to be generally intelligent, you you have to be conscious. You know, you have to have that sense of that inner experience. And of course, there are some people out there, not not people I talk to in the book, but there are some people out there who argue that. A machine can never be conscious because consciousness is fundamentally a, a biological phenomenon, something that arises from biological systems. I've, I've seen a number of people make that argument, and no one really knows. And the truth is, though, that even in the context of human beings, we can't really define consciousness. What is it? And I had this discussion with a number of people and said the same thing, but Gary Marcus was one of them. And I said, uh, and he said to me, you know, how do I know that you're conscious? And I said, well... We're the same species, right? So, so that would imply probably that if since you know you're conscious, you can assume I'm conscious. And he said maybe that's not a good assumption. Maybe, maybe it's just a genetic variation. Like some percentage of people have the gene that makes them really conscious, and everyone else is just kind of acting in a way. So, so you never know, right? I mean, but it, but it's true. You you, I only believe you're conscious because you're the same kind of thing that I am and I know I'm conscious, right? And that's probably a pretty good assumption, right? And we can extend that ex- that assumption to other mammals, right? You know, dogs and cats Agreed. and monkeys are probably also conscious. I mean, that's probably a good assumption, right? But how about an ant? Is an ant conscious? Maybe an ant is just a really good biological robot, right? I mean, I, 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 is there any sense of what it is to be an ant? Is there anything going on inside the, the ant's tiny little brain that, that gives it some kind of inner experience? I mean, I, I, I would say there's a good chance the answer to that is no, that it really is just literally a robot, right? So who knows? I mean, there's literally no way to know that, right? But even when we're talking about biological systems, you know, it becomes very challenging once you move down the food chain, right? For a machine, now you're talking about a completely different substrate, right? So how will we really know if a machine is conscious or not? I mean, there really, there really may be an unanswerable question. Yeah, I mean, so, cause so much of our, our framework for consciousness is based on this idea of pain and the feedback loops associated with pain and how we can evolve around those feedback loops. And that is not to say that that excludes all other kinds of evolutionary feedback loops that could be developed. Right, exactly. So I don't know if there's ever going to be like a Turing test for consciousness. How, I mean, we may have a machine that claims to be conscious, certainly, but that doesn't mean it really is conscious, right? So, 
I don't know if there's maybe someday someone will invent a kind of a test for that, but it's it's a very open and fascinating question. And it's really, that's one of the more interesting parts of the book. If you read the responses in that, that particular discussion. I completely agree. So there's several different questions I, I wanted to ask, but we're up against time. The, you know, the person I want to know his opinion the most on artificial intelligence is Larry Page. And unfortunately, Larry Page is now kind of like the most tight-lipped person in technology. Do you have any idea what his perspective on artificial intelligence is? I, I From what I've read and heard, I've never talked to Larry, obviously, and he's become, as you say, I think pretty reclusive now. I understand he's, he's living on some island a lot of the time or something. I mean, he's had a very, very strong interest in it. He is the one that hired Ray Kurzweil, right? And, and Ray talks about this a bit in the interview, and, and you can find more stuff online that, that basically Ray was going to start his own company, his own startup to work on some of the ideas from his book, How to Create a Mind. And he ran into Larry Page and Larry said, why don't you come and do this at Google because we've got the resources, right? And so clearly Larry's interested, right? I mean, he's. I think he is very fascinated by this idea of artificial general intelligence. And of course, there's also the acquisition of DeepMind, right? which he was also, I mean, I imagine he's the guy that made the decision there, right? So, and DeepMind is arguably the single company that is furthest along and certainly has the most resources and the most talent to really solve this problem. And it's all under uh, the umbrella of Google. So, I, I mean, all indications are that Larry Page has a very, very strong interest and passion in not just artificial intelligence, but artificial general intelligence. Okay. Um, to, to close on the, on the subject of your books and your curiosities, in, in one of your books, you talked about the house cleaner as a role where this is actually quite hard to automate, but you gave the example of a lawyer. A lawyer is not hard to automate because the lawyer is working mostly in the space of information. And my sense is that we're finding out that that many of these information jobs are actually like the house cleaner. These are jobs that are not straightforward. So whether you're a social media marketing manager or a data entry person or a radiologist, there's actually a lot of subtlety in what you are doing. And it begins to look like some of these jobs, we, we actually would not be able to automate them until we get to something that is like artificial general intelligence. And until then, we have just augmentative systems that wouldn't necessarily disrupt the work of humans. Do you find this this view to be compelling at all? The idea that perhaps we will not be obviating the, these people, we'll just be augment, augmenting them and not necessarily disrupting them? Right. So this is one of the debates that's going on. Is it is it is, is AI going to replace people or is it going to augment them? And I think the answer is that it's clearly going to do both. And whether you're mostly replaced or mostly augmented is going to depend on exactly on, on what you're doing, the nature of your work. When you're thinking in terms of white collar type jobs, knowledge-based jobs, I mean, right now, if you, you know, things like creativity are relatively difficult to replace so far, though that could, could well change. So if you're doing something genuinely creative, if you're doing something that involves building sophisticated relationships with people, then those those are harder to automate. But if you're doing something, you know, relatively routine, you know, sort of a, a relatively routine, predictable manipulation of data, then that's going to be much easier to automate. And and I mean you mentioned radiology. I I, I mean there's there definitely is 
going to be a lot of advancing stuff there. I already know of iPhone apps that in some cases have have outperformed, uh, for example, human dermatologists at recognizing cancer in, in skin conditions and so forth. So it, this is happening. What we know is that it's not so much entire jobs that are going to be replaced, it's tasks. It's tasks within jobs. But if you are, you know, suppose you've got two workers, both doing the same basic kind of knowledge work. And let's suppose that half of what each of those people are doing can be automated because it's relatively routine and predictable. Then one possibility is that those two people get half their jobs automated and then they use that extra time to do other things. And that will happen for some workers, for some skilled people. But the other possibility is that you've got two workers and half of what they're doing goes away. And now there's only one job, right? You get rid of one of those workers and let one person just focus full time on the stuff that can't be automated. So things consolidate. So I think both of those things will happen. You know, so I continue to believe that there is going to be a big impact on employment because I believe that a lot of what people do is routine and specialized and predictable. And so there is going to be a big impact there. Um, having said that, you mentioned specifically the house cleaner. And in, in my first book, The Lights in the Tunnel, I talked about how it's really hard to automate a house cleaning robot. You know, how, you know, that would be really hard to do. And it's still very hard. That's still science fiction technology. Whereas a lot of white collar jobs are much easier. And I, in addition to the AI people that I spoke to in this book, I also talked to some really prominent robotics people, in particular, Rodney Brooks. And I talked about this issue. And it is true that building a robot that has genuine dexterity, that can operate in unpredictable environments, something like a house cleaner or a plumber, an electrician, you know, imagining a robot that can do these jobs is really just science fiction. I mean, that would be something like, C-3PO from Star Wars, right? That kind of a robot. I mean, it's way out there. So these kinds of tasks and jobs are safe. That's true. I, I wouldn't worry too much if you're a nurse or a house cleaner, the person that cleans hotels, an electrician, a plumber, you know, these kinds of jobs that really require lots of mobility and dexterity are going to be relatively safe. Although there certainly will be robots that do specialized things, right? You've got floor cleaning robots that do part of what the house cleaner maybe does, but to find someone that can do all of it is very difficult. So that's one of the main challenges going forward. And definitely, I, I would emphasize that in the book, there are a lot of good discussions also about robotics and and the challenges of building physical machines that are you know going to also do things. That's another fascinating area that's, that's also covered. Okay, Martin Ford. Well, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Your books are really inspiring and have been useful for me to develop frameworks for how to think about this stuff. Do you have any idea what you're doing next, what your next book is, or what your next project is? Mostly what I spend my time on is is I do a lot of speaking engagements. I uh, go around and travel and, and talk to different groups about these issues. I, I'm not yet planning an another book because I've just released this one. So I'm still really focused on, on promoting this one. So that's my primary focus. Okay. Well, best of luck with that. And I look forward to your next project. All right. Thank you. GoCD is a continuous delivery tool created by ThoughtWorks. It's open source and free to use, and GoCD has all the features you need for continuous delivery. Model your deployment pipelines without installing any plugins. Use the value stream map to visualize your end-to-end -end workflow. And if you use Kubernetes, GoCD is a natural fit to add continuous delivery to your project. 
With GoCD running on Kubernetes, you define your build workflow and let GoCD provision and scale your infrastructure on the fly. GoCD agents use Kubernetes to scale as needed. Check out gocd.org slash sedaily and learn about how you can get started. GoCD was built with the learnings of the ThoughtWorks engineering team, who have talked about building the product in previous episodes of Software Engineering Daily, and it's great to see the continued progress on GoCD with the new Kubernetes integrations. You can check it out for yourself at gocd.org slash sedaily, and thank you so much to ThoughtWorks for being a longtime sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. We're proud to have ThoughtWorks and GoCD as sponsors of the show. Wow! 